And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness toward us. When we were dead, you made us alive, and you raised us up to sit with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will be with Tom as he speaks. Pray that your Holy Spirit will be at work in us, that we might listen, and that we might, that we might obey, and that we might love you more. We thank you for this day and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Last week, we heard the worst news that any human being has ever heard, and you guys came back. This week, we will hear the best news that any human being has ever heard. The bad news, of course, was really, really bad. Every human being since Adam enters this world already dead in sin. We start out enslaved to sin and to three other tyrannical masters, the world, the devil, and the flesh, even before we ever take our first breath. (laughs) And we are all born deserving the full measure of God's wrath for all eternity. And we can do absolutely nothing about that terrifying state of affairs, not one thing. That's the bad news, and it it couldn't possibly be any worse than it is. But the good news is as good as good gets. Paul launches into the good news in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, with two words. Two amazingly powerful words. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul has brought us back once again to the boundless spiritual blessings that God has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. 
All of us who believe in His Son. Same blessings that He talked about in chapter 1, but now He's viewing all of those heavenly gifts as one whole salvation, one work of salvation from beginning to end. He sets before us our whole salvation as an accomplished fact. And in just four verses, Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, he escorts us all the way from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being made alive, raised up with Christ, seated forever in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. The words raised and seated should especially get our attention. At the end of chapter 1, Paul spoke of the power that raised Jesus from the dead and that seated Him at His right hand. God raised His Son and seated His Son at His right hand in the heavenly places far above every other power and authority in heaven and on earth. Now Paul says that the gift of salvation that God has given to us has raised us and seated us. He has made us alive together with Christ, raised us up, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. We shouldn't miss the the wonderful redundancy of the prepositional phrases in verses 5 and 6. With Christ, with Him, with Him, and in Christ Jesus. See, because God has brought us into perfect union with Jesus Christ, what's true of Christ is now true of us in Him. As God sees it, we're we're already there. We are already seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Paul does not differentiate here between positional truth, what's true of us by God's declaration, and practical truth, what's true of us in experience. The end of our salvation is as absolutely certain as the beginning of it. Our whole salvation is as sure right now as if it had all already been realized. But what is it that makes our salvation so sure? Let me point out again that in just four verses, verses 4 through 7, Paul escorts us all the way from being dead in sin to being seated with Christ forever in the heavenly places. And he takes us that entire glorious distance before he even mentions faith. How can that be? Well, I believe it's because our faith didn't save us. Our faith didn't save us. Paul wants us to know, without any equivocation or qualification, the difference between the cause of our salvation and the effect. The only one doing anything in verses 4 through 7 is God. And He did it all. The only cause of this perfectly complete saving work of God is God's grace, motivated by the richness of God's mercy and the greatness of His love for us. The basis of our salvation is the mercy of God and the love of God See, God saved us because of who He is, not because of who we are. And the one and only cause of our salvation from beginning to end is God's grace. The only goal that's mentioned in verses 4 through 7 
of this work of salvation is this. God saved us in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That language, again, should sound familiar. In chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul said, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You see see what's going on here? God poured out his extravagant grace upon us in Christ by calling us, by choosing us, by predestining us, by calling us, by adopting us as sons, by sealing us with His Holy Spirit, He lavished His grace upon us in order to lavish His grace on us for the rest of eternity. If you belong to Jesus, beloved, that's how well it is with your soul. Do you believe that? If that doesn't change your perspective on the struggles of this very temporary life, I don't know what will. If we're really paying attention, (laughs) these precious and magnificent promises change everything. They completely change our grid for interpreting what's happening to us in this little tiny subatomic dot at the beginning of the line of eternity. Because for the rest of eternity, God is going to pour out like a waterfall upon us His unending grace. Here in chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, Paul gives us a marvelous panoramic view of the whole salvation that we will enjoy forever in Christ as if it had all already been realized. And he hasn't even mentioned faith yet, and he hasn't even mentioned works yet. He's going to talk about both of those things in the next few verses, verses 8 through 10. We'll look at those. Faith and works. But before he does, he's making very sure that we are crystal clear on the difference between cause and effect. The cause of our salvation is God's amazing grace. Period. We're saved by grace alone. And we need to know that. We need to know that. Now in verse 8, Paul tells us where faith fits in, into this beautiful gift of salvation. He says, for by grace you have been saved, we've heard that much before, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. God's mercy and love or the basis of our salvation, God's grace was the cause of our salvation, and faith is the means by which we take hold of that salvation. By which we, the word it's often used is by which we appropriate or take hold of this marvelous gift. Our faith didn't save us. If, if it had, our salvation wouldn't be a gift from God. It would be a transaction between God and us. And that's very important. If our faith were the basis of our salvation or the cause of our salvation or both, then that's where all of our attention would need to be focused relentlessly on our faith. The quantity and the quality and the consistency of our faith would determine everything. But that's not 
what Paul says. The basis of our salvation is God's own mercy and love. The cause of our salvation is the grace of God. So our attention needs to be relentlessly fixed on God. You guys, some of you know Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You know what author and perfecter means? It means he made it and he perfects it. That's where our eyes need to be fixed. Our faith may waver in its quality or intensity, and I'm definitely not saying that a believer ever stops believing in Jesus. 1 Peter 1.5, Peter says, We who believe in Christ are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God keeps us in faith. We don't stop believing in Jesus, but our faith is not unchanging in its quality or consistency. God's grace, on the other hand, is unchanging. When our attention is fixed on our faith, our lives as children of God are filled with uncertainty. When our attention is fixed on His grace, our lives as children of God are filled with confidence, rest, and joyful service. I believe this passage and many others teach that just like every other effect of God's marvelous gift of salvation, faith is caused by grace. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Romans 8 verse 30 says, Whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. It's all God's doing from beginning to end. And since faith is the means by which we receive that entire salvation, if it's all God's doing, it seems to me that God had to give us the faith to receive the gift. Especially since we were dead. Dead people don't have anything to offer. So here in Ephesians 2 verse 8, Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith and that... And I believe he means that by grace, through faith, salvation in its entirety is not of yourselves. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. I want to make sure that we're clearly seeing here what saved us and what didn't. There is a very important pattern here in Ephesians 2 that you'll find repeated over and over in Paul's letters. Whenever Paul is making a really important point about something that God did, (laughs) he tells us how it happened, and then he tells us how it didn't happen. And then a lot of times he again tells us how it happened and how it didn't happen. Paul is very careful to be clear here in verses 8 and 9, just as he is in Romans chapters 3 through 5 and Galatians 2 and other passages. He's very careful to be clear about what saved us and what didn't. He answers in verses 8 and 9, he answers each of those questions twice. Verse 8 and 9, first he says, in answer to the question, what saved us and what didn't, he says, grace did, we didn't. 
And then he says, grace did, works didn't. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that entire, by grace through faith, salvation was not of yourselves. Grace did, you didn't. And then he says it's the gift of God and grace is a gift. It's not grace if it isn't a gift. Not as a result of works that no one may boast. So grace did, you didn't. Grace did, works didn't. Throughout his letters to the churches, Paul explicitly, emphatically, and repeatedly excludes works from both the cause and the means of our salvation. And if you compare what he says here in Ephesians with what he says in his other letters, you'll see that we were saved in totality the same way we were justified. There's a lot of talk these days about justification being just the beginning of salvation. But Paul says we were saved the same way we were justified. Justified means counted or reckoned as righteous in the eyes of God. And the way we were justified is that Jesus bore our sin on the cross, paid the debt in full, and then God covered us with his righteousness. And so God looks at us, he sees the righteous, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that justifies us, it renders us righteous, it imputes to us a righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Christ. Now, Paul says the same thing here about our whole salvation that he says in Romans and Galatians about our justification. God justified us by grace, through faith, in Christ, apart from works. And now he says God saved us by grace, through faith, in Christ, apart from works. And the fact that our whole salvation is caused by God's grace, not by us, not by our works, means there is no place for boasting of any kind with regard to our salvation, any of our salvation, any part of it. And the same fact, the fact that our salvation was entirely caused by God's grace, not by us and not by works, means that we who believe in Jesus are assured by God that we will spend eternity with Him. And that assurance is our birthright from the very moment that He brings us to believe in His Son because God's grace the cause of our salvation, it doesn't change. Now you might be thinking, well, but this passage isn't about assurance. My response would be, it absolutely is about assurance. The assurance, the confidence that God has forever brought us into union with Jesus Christ, He's brought us into union with Jesus, the assurance that that's true, that 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 He has in fact blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that confidence is the bedrock of the worthy walk to which the last half of this epistle calls us, chapters 4 through 6. That's why the first three chapters of Ephesians come before the last three chapters of Ephesians. We're supposed to know, beloved, we are supposed to know what God has given us in Christ and we're supposed to know, to know that that whole salvation is already ours. That's why all of this is in the past tense. By grace you have been saved. Our certainty that the one in whom we trust has saved us to the uttermost is the very ground of a holy life. 
The 19th century Scottish preacher Horatius Bonner said that the reformers believe that one who has been justified, who has been declared perfectly righteous in the eyes of God by grace through faith in Christ, quote, ought to know that he is justified and that this knowledge of justification is the great root of a holy life. He said that this conscious justification such as Luther contended for, gave a man the joy of true liberty and divine fellowship at once without the intervention of another party or the delay of another hour. He said this conscious justification, this confident justification, kept the man from trying to magnify his own goodness in order to extract assurance out of it. It drew him away from self to Christ, away from what he was doing to what Christ had done, thus making Christ, not self, the basis and the center of this new being. It made him more and more dissatisfied with self and all that self contained, but more and more satisfied with Jesus and his fullness. Jesus and his fullness. That's where Paul's going to take us in chapter 3 and 4. And then he says it taught him that confidence that he stood justified in the eyes of God, perfectly at peace with God. It taught him to rest his confidence toward God, not on his satisfaction with self, not on the development of his own holiness, not on the amount of his graces and prayers and doings, but simply on the completed work of him with whom God is pleased. I believe that's a masterful summation of the very heart of this whole epistle. Confidence, assurance that is fixated on the perfection of God's unchangeable, amazing grace toward us in Jesus Christ is the very ground of a worthy walk and a holy life. That holy life, following Christ day by day, fortifies our assurance by showing off to us and to others whose we are and what God has done. But the unshakable ground of our assurance is the promise of God that our salvation, every bit of it, all the way to us being seated with Jesus in the heavenly places was settled from the moment we first believed. When you, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you heard the message of truth, the good news of your salvation, and you believed that message, what happened? God sealed you with His Holy Spirit as a down payment until the day of redemption when He takes possession of His possession of what He bought, which is you and all of us. And God wants you to know that. Paul is not unclear. He does not mince words. In fact, he does. He talks about this over and over and over. Now, Paul draws as clear a distinction as words allow between what saved us and what didn't. There's one more thing we need to know about our salvation, and that's the for what part. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See, God saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, to do works. 
the works that he prepared for us before we ever existed. We'll learn a lot more about those works when we get to the second half of Ephesians, which is all about walking in a manner worthy of our supernatural, miraculous calling in Jesus Christ. Doing the things that reflect our new identity and our new nature as those who have put on Christ by the grace of God. At this point in verse 10, Paul just, he simply sets in front of us the for what part? That God saved us to use us. He saved us so we would work on his behalf. He made us restored image bearers and agents of the living God. We got plenty to do and he intends for us to do it. I want to take the time that remains this morning to consider how we introduce confusion into this marvelous promise that is actually as clear as clear can be. I believe Paul's rigorous clarity here and in many other passages regarding the cause of our salvation, it addresses a universal tendency in us to superimpose on God our way of thinking. Paul addresses that tendency head on by declaring each essential truth of the gospel in both the positive and the negative. He says it's this and it's not that. He allows for no qualification or adjustment of these things that he asserts. It's not this with some element of that. It's just this. We fall into all manner of confusion about the good news of God's gift to us of eternal union with Jesus Christ when we fail to recognize that both of the following truths are presented by God as absolutely true and true absolutely. Absolutely true means as true as true gets. True absolutely means true without any possibility of qualification or adjustment. Here are the two truths that are true absolutely and absolutely true. First, our salvation is an undeserved gift freely given by God. The second truth is that that free gift, now that God has made it ours, makes us entirely owned bondservants and ambassadors of the living God. God owns us. He bought us. He owns our physical bodies. He owns our time. He owns our money, our marriages, our relationships, our jobs, our energy, our emotions, our dreams, our very lives. We have been bought with a price and we are no longer our own. When we fall back on our man-centered thinking, our knee-jerk reaction to those two propositions is they cannot possibly both be true without some qualification, without some adjustment. And that's where things get really, really messy because they are both true without qualification. We have this deeply ingrained perception that a gift that obligates us in any way once we receive it isn't really a gift. It's not really free. And a gift that obligates us in every way, that makes us owned body and soul by the person who gave it to us is the opposite of free. On the other side, we're convinced that a gift that's truly, absolutely free doesn't provide sufficient motivation to change behavior. You know how it goes. If you give a kid a car, he trashes it. But if he has to work his tail off to pay for it, all of a sudden he learns how to actually take care of it. 
So if you want to motivate someone to actually do something with what he has, you have to make sure that he has to pay a really demanding cost for it. Both of those perceptions are pervasively rooted in the old man, not the new man. They are rooted in our thinking and they drive us to heavily qualify one or both of the two absolute truths that we just talked about. And that creates all manner of confusion where there should be none because the simple reality is that both of those declarations are absolutely true and true absolutely. Our salvation is an undeserved gift freely given and our salvation makes us wholly owned, entirely owned bondservants of the living God. The adjustments that we come up with for the most part take one of two essential forms. One of the most common is to backpedal on the matter of God's ownership of us whom he has redeemed. We say things like, God accepts you just the way you are. And then we talk a whole lot about the glories of heaven and very little about the glories of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Because we think that such talk tends to chip away somehow at the freeness of the gift. That's man's thinking, not God's. On the other end of the spectrum, in an effort to keep Christians from falling into complacency and laziness, we end up effectively denying the freeness of the gift. We declare that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then we qualify and adjust that declaration so pervasively and so relentlessly and so repeatedly that it loses all of its clarity and power. To quote Douglas Bond in the book Grace Works, our favorite thing to say about faith becomes faith is never alone. Guys, my favorite thing to say about faith is that God saved me by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's about Him. We take true things and we weigh them so heavily to one side that we end up negating the freeness of the gift. We put so many dents in that freeness that we rob great passages like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Romans 4, Galatians 2 and 3, of all of their wonderfully scandalous clarity and power. You think Paul didn't know that what he said was scandalous when he said, (laughs) to him who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, To him, faith is counted as righteousness, credited as righteousness. Do you think Paul didn't know that was scandalous? He was as clear as he could be with no apology. Beloved, God has no room for our man-derived qualifications and adjustments to his precious and magnificent promises. God did not accept you as you were. You were a lost sinner, enslaved to sin, spiritually dead. You were driven and motivated by the spirit that identified you as as a disobeyer of God, a son of disobedience. You were by your very nature destined inevitably to suffer the full eternal wrath of God, which is all you will ever deserve from the holy God, whose character and ways you and me and all of the rest of us have so grievously violated. For God to accept you as you were would have made him unholy. 
And that's not going to happen. No, see, in order to save you, God had to kill you. He had to crucify you with Jesus, redeem you, adopt you, indwell you, and seal you. He had to make you new. He most certainly did not accept you as you were. We need to dispense with that kind of God-dishonoring and altogether unbiblical language. God's gracious gift of salvation remade us into redeemed children of the living God and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that same gift charged us and equipped us to carry on the work of our Lord and Savior until He comes back and claims all of heaven and earth as His own. That salvation changed both our identity and our nature. Old things passed away. New things have come. That is absolutely true. And it's true absolutely. And when our salvation plays out, there won't be any question. But beloved, this also is absolutely true. And true absolutely. That same entire salvation was absolutely free. Jesus is the one who paid for it. You had nothing to do with it and you never will. It was not of yourselves. It was a gift of God. We had nothing at all to do with getting it. We have nothing at all to do with keeping it. It is all God's doing. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 30 and 31, Paul says, But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If God did it all, where is any boasting except in the Lord? Not only is this great salvation not of ourselves, it is explicitly, emphatically, not a result of works. If you qualify or adjust that declaration, you turn the powerful, transforming clarity and purity and simplicity of the gospel into a confusing mess. God saved you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've received that gift, God saved you so that you would be His eternal possession together with all of His redeemed children. And He saved you to do good works that He prepared for you to do before you ever existed. He will get all of the glory for those works. He will be celebrated in eternity for how He used the unworthy likes of you and me to accomplish His eternal good on this cursed earth. But beloved, those works will never touch the absolute freeness of His gift of salvation. Because it's not of works, it's all grace. The works are part of the miraculous effect of the gift. They will never have any part in the cause. Some of you may be thinking, but Jesus said we have to count the cost of discipleship. Absolutely, He said that. And denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following Christ will cost you everything that this world values. But until this salvation has been made yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you can't count anything. 
and you certainly can't follow Christ because you're dead. Jesus told us when he was here the first time, he told us and he showed us what God actually requires. The Jews thought the bar was way down here and he said, no, it's up there where God is. It's up there where I'm from. I'm the standard. He told us and he showed us what God requires, the true standard of holiness without which no man will see God. Jesus is what God requires of every human being. You want to know what God demands of you, what God requires of you? Look at Jesus. No one with any kind of righteousness short of that will ever stand in the presence of a perfectly holy God. Jesus is what God requires of every human being. And once he made that clear and once he showed us and told us, then he went to the cross to bear the eternal penalty for our utter failure to meet that standard and to clothe us with his perfect righteousness so we can follow him so that we can be like him, so that we can be as Christ in the world. Because there's no other way. It has to be grace. God's demand of every human being that we follow Christ, that we be like Christ, condemns every one of us until he saves us. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. It's a very good thing to to call people to do. Follow Christ. Just like the law was a very good thing for God to use as a tutor to bring people to Christ. But you can't follow him until he saves you. Once he has saved us, as Paul said, he had already saved the Ephesian saints. God's demand, God's requirement, God's standard has been met. And we spend the rest of our earthly lives resting in and working from that overflowing wellspring of God's grace toward us in his beloved son. That's what the Christian life is intended to be. It is a life from fullness. It is a life from confidence, from certainty. It is a life filled with gratitude. It is a life of overflowing thanksgiving. It is a life that cannot resist serving Christ because He is life to us. Last thing I want to point out is that the works to which God has called us as His children while we're still here in these mortal bodies, those works are as gracious a part of the gift of salvation as our eternal destiny to dwell with God forever. We think a gift can't be really free if it obligates us to the giver once we have it. But what if that obligation is one of the most beautiful aspects of the gift itself? God's ownership of us is a beautiful and desirable gift. It's the obligation that blesses beyond measure, for all eternity. There is no greater fulfillment in this earthly life than doing what we were recreated by our Maker to do. To live as redeemed image bearers and wonderfully equipped agents of the living God. Blessed with the task of advancing His kingdom on earth and inviting other people to join us in that kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we come to know God more fully by doing His work than we could ever possibly know Him without doing His work. And knowing Him is life. The Christian life is not a burden. It's a gift. 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And we get to do that right now. Starting the moment that He saved us. It's all grace. If you're here today and you've been counting on anything at all that you bring to the table to make you acceptable to God, if you've been depending on the good things that you can do to make you righteous, all that is filthy rags in the eyes of God by His own declaration. He's the one who provided the way of access to dwell with Him forever. And that way, the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, may today be the day. It's all grace, and it's all good. Heavenly Father, humble us to embrace both the absolute freeness of your astonishing gift and the absolute claim that that gift has over us in every respect, now and forever. We ask it in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.